Father, there are many things that we should be praying about, and all of them are different within the lives of each person here. And yet, Father, we know that you hear each and every one individually, and you cherish and you love your children when we come to you. Father, you cherish each prayer as if there was the only prayer being offered. And to think about how many prayers go up to you each and every day, every minute, it's beyond our comprehension. And yet we know, Father, you say you know every hair on our head, that you have seen us, you hear us, and you know us. And Father, we are thankful for that. We ask, Father, that these prayers today will be tomorrow's blessings. So please be with us tonight. Open up our hearts. Open up my mouth in a correct way, Father, that I'd be able to speak the words that you are saying to us tonight. We love you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, all right, everyone. Um, If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. I am really excited about tonight's uh, message. We are in Exodus chapter 3. Looks like everyone has a Bible. We want you to have the Word of God in your hand. And when I was uh, teaching Exodus, I mean uh, Genesis, when I first started, I remember telling Pastor Sean that I, I see Genesis everywhere now because I'm teaching it. And he's like, well, wait till you get to Exodus. You're going to see Exodus everywhere. Indeed, that is absolutely true. I keep, I'm finding analogies and parallels in my life right now every time I open up the book. And we are in Exodus 3. Last week we were in Exodus 2. And we learned a little bit about the background and the history of the birth of Moses in Egypt. And he thought he was the deliverer for his people. And he goes off and he kills an Egyptian man. And then he finds himself having to run for his life. And he goes off into the wilderness where he finds a wife. The Bible tells us he gets married, he has kids, and he spends 40 years in this wilderness serving his father-in-law that we've come to know. Now, he has his family, he has these in-laws, and so it seems like Moses has basically forgotten all about his Egyptian background, that he's really moved on from that. And how we begin in Genesis chapter 3, I mean Exodus chapter 3, caught myself, and Moses is 80 years old now, and um, he's not yet began his ministry, and he's at 80. And we asked uh, last week, are we ever feel like we're too old to serve in ministry, or for that matter, even too young? And I think we can see through this story that no matter what our age is, no matter where we're at, we're always ready, that we should always be ready. God is always willing for us to serve in the Lord. And so God took Moses to Midian, and He made him a shepherd for 40 years because he had to learn that deliverance was going to come through God's hands, not through Moses' hands. Now, chapter 1, or chapter 3 here, breaks down really nicely into three sections. Um, the first section, I'm just going to say God appears to Moses. There we go, the slide's working. Verses 1 through 6, God appears to Moses. In the second section, 7 through 10, God appoints Moses. And then in the last section, 11 through 22, God answers Moses. And we'll look at all three of those. So let's begin in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. As God appears to Moses. Let's read together. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. 
And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now to see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now here in verse 1, I'm not really sure why his father-in-law's name has changed. Now, if you remember back in last week, chapter 2, verse 28, when we meet his father-in-law, his name was Raul. And some people, you know, they had many names. Some people had two or three names, so maybe it was that. But other scholars, some believe that maybe it was his clan or maybe his last name was Raul. So Jethro was really his first name. We don't really know. And uh, it's just interesting to know that his name has changed here. I don't know if you caught that or not. But it was also interesting for me to look at this and understand that Moses' life really hasn't moved very forward. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's been in the wilderness for 40 years, and we see right here he's tending his father-in-law's flocks still. He's still pastoring them. And in my mind, I'm going, Moses, where's your flocks? I mean, have you really gotten that content over the past 40 years that... You really haven't done much? You have a family, you have children, but where are your flocks? Um, have you gotten so complacent or lack of motive or motivation that you're just... I mean, I think of the contrast from Genesis when Jacob went into his wilderness for 20 years. He lived with his uncle Laban. And in half the time, in 20 years, we see him coming back and he's major rich. He has tons of flocks. He has all kinds of wealth, but Moses... Doesn't seem like he's moved forward much, very much here in his life. I, I wonder if it had something to do with his confidence. Maybe his confidence was just shattered from his time in the wilderness. But it says here that he brings the flocks and he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, just for clarification, let me just say that whenever you see these words, uh, Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, just know that it's all the same place. And um, most people believe that Horeb is the mountain range. Now, Mount Sinai would be the specific peak within that mountain range, so just don't be confused by that. But it's really cool about this specific location. And, and this is part of the, the... When you study the Bible and God starts laying things on your heart and you start seeing new things, and I'm going, I know I've read this a hundred times, but certain things started to connect. This specific location is really interesting because not only is it the place where Moses gets called out, and then later, he returns with the people of God and he receives the law, the Ten Commandments. But remember that it's also the place where Elijah is commissioned. Elijah goes to this same mountain as well, and he's commissioned there. Now, many people, I'm not sure exactly why all people believe this, but there's a tradition out there by scholars that infer that Paul may have done some things here on the mountain of God in Mount Sinai. If you remember after Paul's conversion... He just vanishes from Scripture for a while. He's just he's absent from, from, from Scripture for a period of time. And many scholars that believe, well, maybe he was schooled at Mount Sinai. Maybe it was there that he received this revelation. You remember he talks about, I know a man who 
went to a third heaven. Did he receive the revelation here at Mount Sinai? We don't know. It's just an interesting fact that I really found fascinating as I studied that. And one of the reasons why um, this tradition, I think, has really sprung to life is um, a verse out of Galatians 1, verse 17, and I'll just read it to you here. It's up here on your screen. But when, this is referring to Paul, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. They take that verse and they also take a verse out of, I believe, chapter 4, where it says that, uh, that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. They combine these two and they think, well, maybe Paul indeed did some things here with God on Mount Sinai. So it's just an interesting note. But in verse 2 here, we find that the angel of the Lord appears. This angel of the Lord is an interesting personality that I think we should take a minute to talk about him. The angel of the Lord, we know that angels are created beings, that God created the angels. And we know that in the Greek and in the Hebrew, the word angel literally means messenger. The Bible is full of angels. The Bible is full of messengers. The Bible is even filled with angels who have this specific title, the angel of the Lord. And I wouldn't say filled, but there's passages a lot that use this term, the angel of the Lord. If you were to put that in a Bible program, you would see how many times it pops up. Michael and Gabriel, we know the names of these two angels. Gabriel specifically, the angel of the Lord, he appeared to Mary. He appeared to uh, Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist. And there he's, he tells them, this is what the Lord is going to do. He appears to Daniel, the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, says his name. My name is Gabriel, and this is what God would like you to do. But there is this one particular title, the angel of the Lord, that is used differently. And this title, this angel of the Lord, fits into this category, which is known as a theophany. Who is the angel of the Lord? Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. Here, the angel of the Lord here in, in Exodus 3 is going to speak the words of God in the first person. He says, I am the God of your father. The text says God called him from the midst of the bush. Other angels didn't do that. Gabriel spoke in, spoke in the third person. This is what the Lord would have you do. So we're dealing with a being that is greater than any created angel, because this angel of the Lord also speaks as God. And so Bible scholars really believe, and I as well share this belief, that this is in fact the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word. The Bible teaches us that. And here He is giving Moses the Word. And it goes on to say that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in, this bla in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, Yet the bush was not consumed. Now, when you study this and you have time to really dig deep, I tell you what, there, there are so many meanings as to what this is talking about. That there is a ton of interpretations. There are 
uh, many different parallels that go along with this. Some of them I just wrote down. My head was ready to explode. Some will teach with, with passion that fire is the symbol of God's presence. And, and that's what this fire represents, God's presence. Others will say, no, fire is always associated with judgment. And they have scriptures to back it up, like our God is a consuming fire. And there's others. Some will say, no, the fire represents the Jewish people who have been burned both literally and metaphorically, but they were never destroyed. They were never consumed. That this divine fire sustains the Jews. And there's others. Like I said, my, I was like, oh my gosh, am I supposed to explain all of these? But I just started praying like, God, what, what, what does it mean for me? What does it mean right now for me? As a, I'm no scholar. And I guess for me, the connection that I make is that the burning bush is very symbolic of Moses himself. And here's why. Whenever we try to serve God on our own power, our own strength, in, our, in the power of our own flesh, as Moses did, what happens? We get consumed. But when we serve God from the power of the Spirit... We will burn the Spirit's fire and not get consumed and not get burned up and not get burned out. And I think that's very important for an important lesson for anyone who's serving in any kind of ministry, especially pastors. I think that's why God took him to Midian, Midian and made him a shepherd for 40 years because he needed to learn that deliverance would come from the hand of God and not from Moses' hand and if we're going to be consumed, let's just be consumed by God. And so God, in verse 3, seems decided to get the attention of Moses before he spoke to him. This is so interesting. Verse 3, so Moses said, I must turn aside now to see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look... God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Now we know God could have spoke to Moses at any time and at any place, but he didn't. He chose that place, not this place down here where he was with the flocks, but this place up here at this time in this bush. And it feels like God had to place this shiny object over here to get him off of the direction that he was going in his life and to get him onto God's path to come to him. It's like he redirected him, this life of a shepherd. He redirects him so that he would turn aside to the path of God and get on God's path. And at this point, it's when God decides to speak to him. And then it says, when God saw that he turned aside... That's when the miracles begin to happen. I, church, I think so many times people wonder, well, why am I not hearing from God? Well, maybe it's because you need to be redirected to God's path and get off of your path. Maybe God needs to get your attention before He can speak to you. The best way I know to get off of my path and onto God's path is to get into His Word. 
And God will redirect your life. God will redirect your power, your timing, your flesh. And once He has your attention, you're in the Word, He has your attention. He had His Spirit, His fire toward His Word, He will speak. Look, it doesn't always have to be this huge, miraculous, burning bush type thing. The Word of God is a miracle in and of itself. But it can be this big, burning bush type thing. But it doesn't always have to be. In verse 5, then he said, God says, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now today, when we hear this phrase, remove your sandals, it wouldn't mean the same thing to us as it would mean to the people of this time. We don't typically take off our shoes as a sign of respect to somebody, right? But we have a new pastor, so if you want to go <laughs> meet Pastor Cody sometime, set up an appointment, just go into his office and take off your shoes, and I'm sure, <laughs> or Sean, not me. But taking off your shoes was was this sign of respect because it was, it was a humbling thing because the people of that time, the poorest people in the world there, they couldn't afford shoes. And so if you saw someone who didn't have shoes, you knew that they were poor and that they were humble. And so taking off your shoes here was, was a sign that you were poor and, and humble and, and humble in the state of your being before the great and almighty God. And that's what it meant to them. It was, it was an act of, an act of humility, an act of this, compared to you, Lord, I, I'm just so nothing. The ground was not holy because of its nature. The ground was holy because of God's presence. Because of God's presence. And this is one of the things that I really just started getting so convicted about as I studied this out. Because I started to really ask the question, and wonder, how, how much do we really know? How much do I really understand about the presence of God? The Bible says when two or more are gathered, what does God say? I am there. I'll be there. Well, what day of the week do we most find two or more gathered here at Calvary? On Sundays and, and on Wednesdays when we have everybody together. And do we believe God's presence is there? Absolutely. We come fully knowing the presence of God is going to be there. Two or more are gathered. God says His presence is going to be there. And we believe it. And yet as I think about it, about for me and for us, I think, how is God telling me to take off my shoes? How am I showing my reverence and my respect for God when we're in the presence of God. The, the way we worship is what we did earlier through prayer and through song, through, through our worship songs. We sing songs about God that direct our hearts to God. And yet there's times, church, where I'm back here talking instead of focusing. I'm back here doing business. I'm back here chatting with people and oh, they're singing. They got, oh, sounds good. 
And I'm back here just, I'm just not focused. I'm not showing the reverence. I think about when we show up late. What made me really think is, let's say Pastor Sean's going to be gone. And he's going to have a guest speaker, and that speaker is going to be Jesus Christ. Would you be late on that day? The presence of God is here, going to be teaching. Would you be late on that day? What's the difference? The presence of God. How little do we really understand about the presence of God? I'm Look, I'm not pointing out anyone. I'm pointing right here. But it's a mindset that really convicted me as I was studying this out. I just thought, where's my humility? Where's my reverence in the presence of God? Humility in the state of my being before the great and almighty God. Now, I know we show humility before God in different ways. One, I see some people, when they pray, they get on their knees. I've seen at our church, people literally come up to the front during worship and just lay prostrate on the ground, just lay down. And what I get convicted of, I remember just going, that's weird. That's probably the most biblical way of showing your humility before the great and almighty God. Like, I'm nothing before you, Lord. Fasting, another great way of showing our humility before God. In verse 6, God says, I am the God of your fathers. And what does Moses do? He hides his face. Like, I can't even look at you, God. He gets it. He's understanding where he's at. In verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to do a good and spa- to a good and spacious land to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hevitite and the Jebusite Now behold the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me furthermore I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians were oppressing them Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. God appoints Moses right here in this section. So God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, and after he told him that he was on holy ground, that he needed to remove his shoes, he tells him who he is, and he says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. Then he declares in verse 7, and you could just underline it in verse 7, I have surely seen, I have given heed, and I am aware. And I I love the way the King James Version reads. I have it on the slide there. It says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. God declares He is seen, He is heard, He knows. These are the very attributes of God that Jesus spoke about in the New Testament. Your Father sees, your Father hears, your Father knows you. 
In, he spoke of this, in your giving, in prayer, and in fasting, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. I, you know, Moses must have often wondered about the condition of his people after he left Egypt, after he was out there for over 40 years. I'm guessing he often just thought, how are they? Does anybody know? But now he understands that God has been watching, God had been listening, God had been knowing the whole time. God says, I have come. I have come. And that's just, look, it, it's an idiom for divine intervention, I have come. So God is appointing Moses. He's saying, look, I, I am intervening through you, Moses. I am sending you now, Moses, because I have seen, I have heard, and I do know what has been going on. But Moses said to God in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. So here God answers Moses who asked this self-doubting question, who am I? Moses had, is so changed after these 40 years, so changed in his life by this time. He's become so meek and so mellow. 40 years ago, he would have told God who he was. Well, I'm the guy that you called. I'm the guy who was born into this job. I'm the guy who knows it all, who's seen it all. I'm the smartest of them all. But years of communion with God, years of discipline by God, had totally changed him. And did you notice there in verse 12? Notice what it doesn't say. And he said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to them. No, it doesn't say this will be a sign to them. It says this will be a sign to you. That is, I who have sent you, Moses. God needed to convince Moses with a sign, with a promise, before he could convince the people. Again, I just think 40 years out there, doubt, wondering, confidence, doubt. He needed some convincing right here. And that's why I believe God just says, I want to give you a sign, Moses. Let's get you started. What Moses thought about himself or what anyone else thought about Moses really wasn't important because God had spoken. That's all Moses really needed to know was that God had spoken so I can be assured that I am now the man for the job. Church, who we are is not important. What is important is that God is with us. Whatever task it is that you are assigned to in life right now. Whatever ministry at your job is your ministry. Whatever ministry you are leading by example at your job or even in the church. It's not important who you are. It's important that God is with you. 
I don't speak well. <laughs> if you only knew what goes through my head. Just ask, talk to Pastor Sean one day, and he'll tell you all the insecurities I have about coming up here and speaking. I can't do it. I just connect with this. And I just go, man, thank you, God. It's not important who I am. It's important that God is with me. Apart from me, you can do nothing, John 15, 5. I will be with you is all the assurance that any servants of God need to understand. He told that to Joshua. He told that to Isaiah. In Joshua 1, verse 5, he says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. And I will not fail you nor forsake you. He tells us the same message today. So never forget that, church. So God answers the questions, Moses, who am I? With these two promises again, I will give you my personal presence. I will be with you. Um, this will be a sign that you will return to Mount Horeb with the people. He's like, that's a promise. Write it down. I won't forget. You will worship God on this mountain. And then Moses has another question. He's like, well, okay, so who am I now? Who are you? Like, who, who's sending me? Verse 13, then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you, sh you, sh you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. This statement again, I am who I am, is really first to Moses. God is declaring His relationship to Moses. He says, I am. What, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you saying? I am whatever you need, Moses. Whatever you need, at whatever time, I am. I will be whom I will be. Have you ever heard that love is a verb? You've heard that in your life, right? Love is a verb. It's action. You don't... It's not a tingly feeling. Love is a verb. Well, right here, the name of God is declared as a verb. I am. I am to be. Because God always wants to be to you whatever you need Him to be. Whatever your need is, I am that. I am your hope. I am your peace. I am your help. I am your guide. I am your strength. I am your righteousness. Whatever you need, I am. I love that. There are seven famous I am statements in the book of John. Probably most of you know that. Seven I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John alone. I am the bread of life. As bread sustains life, physical life, so Christ offers and sustains spiritual life. I am the light of the world to the lost world in darkness. Christ offers Himself as a guide. I am 
the door of the sheep. Jesus protects his followers, the shepherds, protects their flocks from predators. I am the resurrection and the life. Death is not the final word for those in Christ. I am the good shepherd. Jesus is committed to caring and to watching over those that are his, his flock. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the source of all truth and knowledge about God, and I am the true vine. By attaching ourselves to Christ, we enable His life to flow in and through us. I mean, it's what I prayed during that 10 minutes before I came up here. Jesus, You are the, you are the vine, I am the branch. In You, I can do anything. Apart from You, I can do nothing. I am the bread of life, light of the world, door of the sheep, the resurrection and the life, the good shepherd, the true vine, the way, the truth, and the life. God always wants to be to you whatever your particular need might be. It's beautiful. Verse 16. We read, it says this, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about what you and what has been about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hevitite and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So just real quick. So to the Hebrews, he was Jehovah God. You see how your Bibles, it's capitalized, Lord. It's capitalized for the word Jehovah. To the Hebrews, he was Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But to Pharaoh... He's Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews. Verse 19, But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsion. So I will stretch up my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, thus you will plunder the Egyptians. So after being apprised of the nature of this mission that he's on, Moses receives instructions, he receives details, and God says, look, you need to go to the elders you need to tell them about my appearance in the burning bush. You need to tell them that I am concerned, that I have seen, that I have heard, that I know of my people. I am concerned. And tell them about my plan that I'm going to deliver them out of Egypt and I'm going to take them to Canaan and I'm going to use you. And then when the elders, or you gather the elders and you all go to Pharaoh, you approach him and you are to say, the God of the Hebrews 
He requests permission for us to leave on a short little trip. Three days. It's a religious trip. Don't panic. And he intentionally has him leave out the part that we will never return. But God tells Moses that Pharaoh will not respond to his request except by God's mighty hand. And that God is going to have to perform wonders, and we know these wonders to be the ten plagues, which is next chapter, to persuade Pharaoh to let them go. And then at the end there in verse 22, God says that they will plunder the Egyptians. (laughs) And that's a lot. That's a lot for anyone to comprehend. The reality of the matter, though, about plundering, taking their loot, the reality of that matter is that God is He's giving them the wages that they've already earned due to 400 years of slavery and bondage without pay. Later we know that that gold and that silver that they take from them, I mean, this is the richest country. And they plunder them. They, they take it all. We learn later that that gold and silver is used to build the tabernacle. God had a plan. It wasn't just so you can be happy and rich. God had a plan. And it's so crazy to me that they, they will want them to go so badly by the end of the ten plagues that they're going to pay them to go. Like, here, take it. Just go. Take this. Oh, you forgot this. Here, here, take this. It's... Look, I just go, God sometimes gives us more than we deserve. And we see that being played out right here. He often gives us more than we even ask. But God is concerned about His people. He sees. He hears. God knows. But often, I've been there. We feel like I'm going through all this stuff. And nobody knows what I'm going through. God knows. Look, I'm a pastor. Pastoral care is what my title. And sometimes I see and I hear, but I don't always know. God knows. I just found out Sunday about something I didn't know that I wish I would have known earlier. But God's always known. So I love when God, I'm just reminded that God said, so I have come down. I'm so comforted by that because he, he gave us Jesus Christ. It says he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And I would encourage you as we close out with this, that God has promised us a promised land. That God knows. And some things will never get answered this side of heaven. But God saw it all. There is not one millisecond of your suffering that did not mean something. Not one millisecond. It all means something. I just may never know until the other side of heaven. He's promised us a promised land, and it's heaven. God sees and God hears and God knows, and I love thinking about heaven, and I love what it says. You know this passage, no eye has seen, 
and no ear has heard. And what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. I love, love thinking about that all the time. I can't even imagine. <laughs> it's fun to try though, right? Isn't it fun to try what your room would look like and the first people you're going to see when you get there? I mean, I, I feel like I already know. We just talked about this in Stephen ministry. And everybody was weeping. We were talking about some tough, challenging things. And uh, heaven, what an amazing place it's going to be. So let's go ahead and just leave it there for tonight. And uh, next week, be reading uh, Genesis, or, ugh, Exodus chapter 4. See, I'm getting better at catching myself with these things. Thank you, God. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, Father, thank you for um, just your words. And Father, the way they, they've impacted me, and I just pray, Father, that each week would always be just an overflowing of what you're doing to me. Father, I pray that we would all be able to learn we would get off our path and get on your path, that we would always have open ears and eyes to see you. Father, distract us if we need to be distracted by something that is miraculous to get our attention on you, as you did with Moses in the burning bush. Redirect our hearts, God. Father, show us when we're going the wrong way. Father, put someone special into our life that would redirect our thoughts and lead us right to your word. Father, I know from experience, as everyone probably here does, that your word is the way, that your word changes us from the inside. And then outwardly, people can see the fruit of that. Father, we pray that that continues to happen, that I would grow as a Christian, as a father, as a husband, as a pastor. And everyone around us would grow as well. We love you, Lord, and we praise you and thank you. In Jesus, I pray. Amen.